Welcome to Looking at Lucasfilm, the podcast with a different perspective on the world of Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and other, all of the other entities that George Lucas, Kathleen Kennedy, and the rest of the team at Lucasfilm have dreamed up over the past 40 years. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and my co-host, the one, the only, Dan Z, and I are recording this on Wednesday, June 10th. So, Dan, did you see the news about the reopening of the Disneyland Resort? I did, and, and it's just amazing how every time you and I are set to record, something breaks or, or you know, is revealed, and then we can plug it into the show. And, of course, you're always on top of things. So, yeah, this is this is some interesting news and um, interesting uh, specific dates and historical relevance to them, too. Yeah. You know, just, well, it, what Dan is referring to is we've, we know, again, today news broke about the phased opening of the Disneyland uh, Resort. And, and remember, they've been closed since middle of March, right? Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, okay. We start with downtown, the downtown Disney uh, retail dining district that, that supposedly is going to open on Jul- July 9th. Uh, then on July 17th, uh, which, as you just pointed out, uh, historical significance, that's the, what is it? That's the 65th anniversary of the opening? Yeah, yeah, yeah pretty right. cool. Yeah, Can't I be agree. an accident. <laughs> the polite way of saying that, Dan, is there's a warehouse full of 65th anniversary merch that was open, <laughs> ordered many months ago. And it's like, you know, I am not going to eat these T-shirts. You opened that park on the 17th. So uh, speaking of which, uh, Disneyland Park and California Adventure uh, both open on the 17th. And then uh, out on the t- July 23rd, um, the Grand Californian Hotel and Spa and Disney's Pacific Pier Hotel open. I, I couldn't help but notice, Dan, that the Disneyland Hotel, um, no opening date yet. Um, yeah, it's almost like, oh, I don't know, of course, because the news is so fresh. But at Disney World, they haven't announced all the resorts opening yet either. That's so I wonder if that's it's coming slowly or if some are just not going to open. I don't know. I mean, they all are close to one another, but not so close that, you know, you can still do social distancing, obviously. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, uh, folks who listen to this podcast are, are, you know, interested. It's like, okay, does this mean I'm going to get to ride the Indiana Jones Adventure? Does it mean I'm going to be able to get back to Galaxy's Edge and get into uh Oga's Cantina or uh Savvy's workshop. Um folks, I d I don't know what to tell you. Uh because there there was a certain chunk of boilerplate that went with with this. And I'm I'm gonna read this and emphasize a couple of sections. So upon opening, certain Disneyland Resort theme parks, hotels, restaurants, and other locations may be limited in capacity and subject to restricted availability availability, or even closure based on guidance from health experts and government officials. Furthermore, certain attractions, experiences, services, and amenities may be modified, have limited availability, or remain closed, and park admission and offerings are not guaranteed. Um, Okay, that last one, offerings are not guaranteed. Uh, Dan, I can't help but wonder if you know, reading the tea leaves here, if that's Disney's polite way of saying, 
the Disneyland After Dark Star Wars night, uh, which you and I were looking forward to because we've got tickets for the That's August right. 28th. Um, I'm wondering if that's going to be one of the offerings that's not guaranteed because um, right now, for example, if you Google uh, Disneyland After Dark Star Wars Night and hammer on the link, it actually takes you to the Disneyland Resort page that talks about these phased openings. So, um, you know. Well, remember well, how hard it was to get those tickets anyway? And it they was. prematurely it was. sold out. And then they let everybody call in individually and had, they had to all had to ask to talk to a supervisor to buy tickets. And they finally did. And I, gosh, I mean, well, they went through I, a lot. But this is, again, it's such a precarious thing. Like we've talked about, we desperately want these things to happen, but totally understand too. that. Health has to come first. We just want all the information. So, I mean, for me personally, especially with what we're about to jump into, I need to know about, you know, should I get plane tickets? Should I not? What? How, how should we go about doing this? I see. Now, this is what Dan is referring to, of course, is the Star Wars celebration, which is uh, supposedly happening at the Anaheim Convention Center August 27th through the 30th. Now, interesting thing. If you go to the official Star Wars celebration site, uh, it's up and running. In fact, the countdown clock just told me that there are 77 days and 12 hours till the event. Um, and I, I also, I, I did my due diligence. I went over to the Anaheim Convention Center and okay, so when does that reopen? Uh, and actually that reopens next month on July 14th. Uh, first, evidently the first event since the convention center shut down, uh, is the Revolution Talent Competition, uh, which uh, runs through the 18th of July, and then that's followed by the Orange County Home and Garden Show, July 31st through August 2nd. And Dan, we're gonna miss BabyCon. Hopefully, oh. um, you know, there'll be a virtual one. Well, we can we can only hope. But yes, BabyCon runs at the Anaheim Convention Center from August 1st through August 2nd. Um, so, all right, again, in theory, uh, looks like Star Wars Celebration is still going to happen, but literally an hour before Dan and I started recording tonight, uh, the folks who run Coachilla, as well as Stagecoach, which is the, the big uh, country Western music festival, both uh, announced that they were canceling. I mean, literally the event for the, the, the event was supposed to happen initially in April, got pushed to August. And it's now canceled for all of 2020. Um, and, and that coupled with the news today that nine California counties uh, reported that they saw a spike in coronavirus, uh, you know, infections. Um, look, there is no polite way to talk, say this, but uh, there's a lot of health uh, experts, you know, who point to the fact that so many people were out in the streets uh, for a good cause, uh, but we're, we're out in close contact uh, without masks. Uh, a lot of them for the past 10 days. Uh, these health experts are warning that we, we could see another nationwide spike in COVID-19 cases, which could result in another stay-at-home, shelter-in-place order, uh, which very likely will impact Star Wars Celebration and Disneyland After Dark Star Wars Night. Um, yeah, you, we just nobody has any idea, and it, it's hard. It's hard to exercise that Jedi patience. And anyway, we were just uh, touching on uh, the protests, and 
Dan, I, I, I wanted to ask you about John Boyega's speech in Hyde Park. Uh, what yeah. did you think of that? Well, I, I watched it, and mm-hmm. I was – there are very few times in my life where I've seen that kind of passion. I mean, intense and angry and sad and emotional and, and charismatic and full of grief and rage. And it just – it was so compelling, and I was just – was so moved. And I said to my wife right away, I said, you've got to see John Boyega's speech. It was very moving and emotional. It really kind of took things to another level for me. And so much so that I ended up going to a protest a couple of days after the fact. And Did I just really? kept thinking about Boyega's speech. Yeah, he was, he inspired me for sure. Holy cow. Now, I, I have to admit, you know, the, the, the line that got to me from the speech is, he, he, it was, I'm speaking from the heart. I don't know if I'm going to have a career after this, but yeah. after that. You know, and, and what was honestly just so touching afterwards was to have Lucasfilm, you know, literally reach out through the corporate account and to the effect of, you know, it's like we consider John Boyega a hero, you know, and that, you know, and then to put across their own Black Lives Matter message that, you know, that, that, that now is the time. Black lives have always mattered. Black lives have always been important. And back, black lives have always meant something. And the evil that is racism must stop. Uh, and Lucasfilm as a company is committed to being part of the change that is long overdue in the world. And, um, and what was also really nice is to have, did you see what J.J. Abrams tweeted out? Oh, really wonderful! I I love seeing uh, people coming to um, to his to his side to show that they are united. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's what Jay Big Jay said in specific. It's, you know, and uh, no is in capital letters. It's that you know, as long as I'm allowed to keep working, I will always beg to be begging to work with you. Deep love and respect, my friend. So, uh, and likewise, Jordan Peele, likewise Olivia Wilde. I'm going to a lot of folks. Uh, you know, sort of you know, jumped on social media to let John know that they had his back. So um, that's just nice. You know, it, it's um, amazing. It's it, again, it's, he's inspiring a lot of people and people who have already feel this way anyway, it's just helping them to take it to another level, which is exactly what he did. And what obviously needs to be done so we can raise awareness for this because it's extremely important. No, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, now speaking of things from the UK though, uh, just earlier today, while Dan and I were assembling the show, um, how did you find out about the the, the Empire poll? I saw this on um, the Raider.net's Twitter feed and on mm-hmm. the IndieCast Twitter feed um, that they had this poll out there. And, of course, because of what you're about to share. Well, what Dan made me aware of is that the readers of Empire magazine have just voted on the greatest ever movie hero – and according to them, that is Indiana Jones. Um, and kind of interesting, some of the other folks that, that made the list, uh, we've got uh, Casablanca's Rick Blaine, which, let's be honest, there's, there's quite a bit of Indiana Jones who, you know, that, 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 you know, has to, you know, nod to Humphrey Bogart and, you know, his performance as Rick Blaine in, in Casablanca. Uh, we have some modern day heroes, uh, and Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man, uh, kind of a treat to see Disney's Moana in there, but I, I guess I get that. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah. And is, then, the, is, uh, is Captain America in there too, besides Downey? 
you know, yeah. I don't know. I, you know, I was trying to, you know, I was doing some poking around, trying to get a hold of the full 50. Uh, the problem is that the magazine publishes tomorrow, June 11th. Uh, so, you know, they have the promo, they have the teaser, but the full list isn't available at this point. So, Oh, fun. I can't wait uh, to check it out. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to see if there are any other uh, Lucasfilm favorites that made the list. But two others from the 80s, uh, Marty McFly from the Back to the Future trilogy and Alex Foley from Beverly Hills Cop. That's more ass- surprising to me. It is. Yeah. I, I'm I'm assuming that they're just you know, Beverly Hills Cop 2, Beverly Hills Cop 3. I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, just you know, the, the first film. Wonderful. You know, Um and, but it's a great fun movie, and it and it's got it it's much more action than than funny. But but you know, I don't typically think of him as an action hero. I just think of him as a as a as a great character. Well, you know that that's and that's that's another one of those weird Hollywood stories. I mean, uh, that project I guess was originally written for Stallone, and no you know, kidding. And it was, yeah, and it just it was one of these things where Stallone eventually said no, or there was a conflict, and then it was like, well, who's available? And it's like, well, Eddie Murphy, this kid from Saturday Night Live, and you know, and it was one of these weird situations where he'd shoot during the week, and then you know, on on Thursday he'd hop on a plane, Friday he'd be in rehearsal, uh, Saturday he'd shoot the episode of Saturday Night Live, and then Sunday he'd fly back out to LA and shoot more scenes. So, um, you know, but again, he he was young then. He was what in his twenties, and you can do stuff like that. Um, speaking of, though of you know uh, changes for films and and Hollywood history, um, I really have to get you a copy of this at some point, Dan. I've, I've got a copy of the first script that Lawrence Kasdan wrote for, for Raiders. Um, and great. Yeah. It's, but, but the, what's kind of interesting though, is, you know, for example, there's the part where Indy is leaving the college to go to Nepal to chase down Marion. And suddenly there's this scene on a plane where you, then you watch the pilots parachute out and, and Indy's now on an empty plane and has to save himself by, you know, throwing a, a raft out the window. And likewise, at the end of the seat where all the Nazis have melted or been attacked by, you know, ghosts and the cover goes back on um, the Ark of the Covenant. You know, the next thing is, you know, Indy and Marion are trying to get the Ark of the Covenant back to the sub that Indy, you know, lashed himself to the um you know the the, the periscope the periscope and and but the thing is that they're using the not the system of mine cars that the, the nazis have tunnels that have dug under the island uh and they're discovered by other nazis and they're chased through the mine tunnel and it's obviously anybody who's seen temple of doom it's like wait a minute those are two scenes from uh you know a, a temple of doom and yes they were but they were originally written for raiders and Evidently, as part of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg's agreement, you know, to the effect of, look, we're going to make this movie for cheap and we're going to, you know, deliver it on time. And one of the easiest ways of, you know, making sure they made, you know, their agreed upon deadline was to cut these two 
you know, effects filled action scenes. And, and they really would have interrupted the, the rhythm of the film anyway. I mean, I, I think Raiders is almost a perfect film the way it's edited and put together anyway, but this is what I'm learning more and more about Lucas uh, mm-hmm. in his, his creative approach and Lucasfilm in general is that there are no ideas that are just wasted. They keep mm-hmm. them forever. There's a lot of stuff from the empire strikes back that went into star Wars rebels mm-hmm. or later into rogue one and things like that. They just, he does that. He holds on to these ideas that are great and saves them and recycles them and kind of re- repurposes them. And I just think it's cool. I don't really know too many other creators who do things like this. And I think it's wonderful. Well, it, it's interesting that you, you say that because the, you know, our, <laughs> the, there's a reason that George and the Imagineers got along as well as they did because it's the exact same culture. I mean, you know, just sort of like you develop something, it doesn't quite work, you set it aside. You know, I mean, you know, both of them viewed, you know, both organizations, Lucasfilm and Walt Disney Imagineering, you know, viewed that as a virtue. It's like, okay, this doesn't work, but set it aside. We'll, we'll, We'll circle back to that. Um. But okay. Uh, moving on now. Um, do you, so you're still watching Disney Gallery, The Mandalorian? Oh yeah, completely riveted by the behind the scenes of the creation of the child. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that 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 was amazing. Though I have to say, though the 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 most recent episode uh, really fascinated me when Favreau was talking about you know, when they were working on the Mandalorian and, you know, and, and, and face it, you know, they, they knew going into this, they were kind of limited because it was a television budget uh, rather than a film budget. And it, you know, the notion of, well, how are we going to do star Wars for, for television? And what Favreau talked about is that he decided, I'm not going to go back to the star Wars movies. I'm going to go back to the movies that George looked at when he was writing the original Star Wars. And, you know, so it's the films Kurosawa, it's Spaghetti Westerns. And, and you know, and that's the thing. When you look at The Mandalorian, well, of course, that's what it is. And, and the weird thing is, though, it's, you know, The Mandalorian is more Star Wars because of that. You know, the, because it went yeah. back to, you know, what George used to inspire him. Um. But uh, yeah, now, in addition to um, the again, this Disney uh, Disney Plus uh, limited series just last week, uh, ATX TV at home did a virtual panel uh, with uh, again with with Favreau and Taika Waititi and Bryce Howard and Bryce actually shared this this story about how she got her gig to to direct the fourth episode of, of season one of the Mandalorian, the Sanctuary. And what well, first of all, what she did is when her dad uh, was hired to replace uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller on Solo, a Star Wars story, um, she went over, uh, you know, went along with her dad and basically sat at his elbow um, and watched him direct Star Wars. And it, you know, and you know, because she really wanted to throw her hat in the ring for the Mandalorian. In fact, over the course of production, evidently she, you know, had a discussion with the folks at Lucasfilm, and they were like, "Okay, all right, we could do that." Um, but but she also took, you know, again, she's a mom, so she took her two kids, 
um, you know, who were six and 11 at the time with her to the set of uh, the Mandalorian. And only then uh, kind of flashed on the fact like, Oh my God, my kids are meeting the child, you know, baby Yoda. And, but you know, this thing won't be out for another year. And, you know, they're going to go to school and they're going to talk. That's <laughs> so, a long time. for Yeah. You know, you know, you know it's a long time for a six year old and 11 year old to, to, to keep a secret. And so yeah. <laughs> Bryce, talked about how every day she'd get the kids ready to go to school and as they were headed out of the house she'd turn to them and go okay what are you not going to talk about today and they'd both say baby you know so they they, they they managed to keep, keep the secret the full time speaking um, of baby did you see the um the the concept art for as they were evolving the look of the child uh some of those looks that were just yeah. absolutely hideous <laughs> Well, you know, Thank goodness then, they didn't do that. You know, um, well, which brings me to an interesting question. Um, and now, again, you've seen Phantom Menace, right? And, Phantom Menace? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So the Jedi times Council- in the theater. Okay. Uh, Jedi Council scene. Uh, what is the name of the other member of Yoda's oh, race? That's Yaddle. Yaddle. Okay. Yes. Yaddle is not a particularly attractive whatever Yoda is. You know, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but, you know, that the, the Yoda seemed to have gotten all of the looks, you know, because Yaddle's, you know, and and, and, <laughs> and and that's the thing. That's the, the, the concept art you were remi- reminding me of, of, of the, the child. It's like, yeah, there were a couple of Yaddles in the pile there. They, they really, you know, um, but wasn't it that they, once they nailed the eyes, they kind of went backwards from that. Was was that the story, or I believe so? Yeah, yeah. Now, seriously, folks, if you were not watching uh, Disney Gallery, The Mandalorian, you're missing out on so much good behind the scenes stuff, though. Um, uh, though, again, out of this ATX at home virtual panel, Bryce shared one other story, which actually, interestingly enough, inf- then informed the whole series of The Mandalorian. Um, she talked about how, uh, you know, when they were conceiving things uh, for the show, uh, she was in the editing bay with, with John Favreau and her daughter came in, the, the, the six year old. And whenever Yoda was on screen, the little girl would lean into her mom and say, where's baby? Where's baby? Where's baby? And now, again, a, a normal human being might have been annoyed by this. You know, you're in a work environment and the small child is, where's baby, where's baby, where's baby? But John Favreau is not a normal human being. He sat back and it's like, that's important. You know, that, you know, it just suddenly realized that two kids who were watching the show, baby is real. And this particular episode, you know, baby is put in jeopardy, you know, a lot. And so it was like, we need to you know, make sure that people who are watching this episode always know where baby is and always know that baby is safe. And so that actually uh, contributed to one of the funniest moments out of the episode where uh, the Mandalorian and uh, the, I'm blanking her name, the the wonderful warrior character. Um, Oh, uh, Cara uh, Cara Dune? Cara Dune. They're, They're fighting in the streets in the village. 
and you know they've 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 just drawn on each other and but they then hear a sipping noise off to the side and you cut to the shot of you know the you know, the child with the the bowl of of bone broth and it's just you know you know quietly sipping the beverage and watching the two of them fight and um and again that all came out of um you know that that's uh you know bryce uh howard's daughter's going where's baby where's baby where's baby so um anyway uh i guess we should also mention that they did talk about uh that season two uh will be starting in october uh though another funny moment that's worth uh, mentioning uh, about this is that as they were closing up this ATV or ATX TV at home panel, uh, you know, the, the, the woman who's in charge of the um, Obi-Wan Kenobi limited series for Disney plus got asked about that project. And she was like, well, you know, we're writing, we're ramping up and you know, that sort of thing. And, and they then turned to Taika Waititi and asked him about, you know, that Star Wars project that just got announced, how he's developing a feature. So, you know, Taika, what's going on with that? And his response was, it's done. We've shot it. It's, it's, it's you know, completely finished. <laughs> it's, it's in the can. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I so enjoy him. Um, he's great. Oh, man, he is he is great. Great. He's, he, he's the oxygen we need in Star Wars these days. Uh, totally agree. So, but folks, uh, also, you know what else is coming in October, specifically October 20th? The Star Wars books, subtitled Expand Your Knowledge of a Galaxy Far, Far Away. Uh, and this is written by Cole Horton, Pablo Hildago, and some guy, Danzi. It's a very familiar man, can't place it at the moment. Drew Taylor's best friend. There we go. Okay. You know, um, and mind you, uh, Cole uh, has written another book, uh, Star Wars Book of Lists. And when we get back, uh, we'll talk a little bit about that as well as Craig Miller's terrific uh, Star Wars memories. And we're back. Um, now, okay, so uh, the folks at B&M Books were nice enough to send me a review copy of Star Wars, The Book of Lists. Um, this will be hitting store shelves or be available through Amazon on June 23rd. Um, and it's... It, it, it's kind of uh, an interesting Star Wars book because it comes at it from kind of a trivia point of view rather than uh, individual chapters or that sort of thing. So, um, you know, they break it down into intriguing ideas like which character has been to the most planets, uh, which are the deadliest creatures in the Star Wars universe. Uh, you know, talking about some of the folks who did cameos. I, you know, have just been paging through it this afternoon and I have to admit, what I enjoyed out of this was that, well, first of all, uh, lots of, it's a, a wonderful section of scenes that were cut. Um, and, you know, looks, we, you know, we, we all know about uh, the, uh, what is the name of the, his Luke's cadet friend? Uh, oh, Biggs, Biggs Darklighter. Hey. This big Zark lighter. Uh, we all know about that scene, and I, I still have heard from a number of people it wasn't so much that it was a bad scene; it was just the continuity was terrible because of the cape that Biggs wore. That you you just noticed no matter when they cut it together that it's on the shoulder, it's off the shoulder, it's on the shoulder. Uh, but there's also um, they talk about cut scenes from Phantom Menace, like 
Anakin Skywalker's fight with Greedo. Uh, there was uh, a scene, and I would actually have loved to have seen this. That, Did you that, say Anakin Skywalker's fight with Greedo? Did you mean Luke? No, it says Anakin Skywalker's fight with Greedo. Now, I'm going to assume huh. that's, you know, again, they say it's from The Phantom Menace, so that must be the young Greedo. Oh, I could see that. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 On the other hand, you know, I, I for years I heard about this scene uh, from uh, the film that eventually became Revenge of the Sith, but it's Yoda's Dagobah arrival. I mean, there was supposed to be this amazing montage hmm. where, you know, the, these characters that you knew from the prequels scattered to the four winds and sort of, you know, you know, were in place for when the original trilogy came up. But he describes that, this deleted scene depicts Yoda's arrival in the swamp planet Dagobah. Um, and had you ever heard about that before? I've seen it. It's on uh, deleted scenes on Revenge of the Sith. It's really oh, cool. Man. It's very quick, but it's really beautiful. I have to chase this down. Wow. Okay. Um, but yeah, I you know, and and that along with you know, for example, um, you know, the the actual locations where you know so much of Star Wars was shot and. Um, you know, I, I still, you know, love that story about, uh, from the, you know, Star Wars celebration where, uh, the, the, the gentleman who directed Rogue One, <laughs> he established his bona fides to the audience for Star Wars celebration by talking about what, how he went to Tunisia where they shot the scenes. At That's Lee. right. <laughs> Gareth but, Edwards. Okay, but I, but the thing is that he brings milk and he brings blue <laughs> right. powder with him just so he can drink, um, you know, milk, blue milk at, you know, at, at Aunt Baru and, and Uncle Owen's house. And it's just sort of like, you know, I, I just, for me in the audience, it was like, wow, bringing milk to the desert. That sounds like a brilliant idea. I'm sure that's going to work out. You know? The the Disney um, sh chefs know all about preparing the idea of that for Galaxy's Edge. They do. They do. I, I still think the green stuff tastes like lawn clippings, but that's just me. You know, I'm just, you know, or maybe that's because I just mowed the lawn today. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, look, on, on, Recent episodes of looking at Lucasfilm, uh, Dan and I have shared stories about that 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 period between when principal photography of New Hope was completed and when the original Star Wars movie was released to theaters. And it was in this space that people like uh, Bill Wallen or, or the late Charles Lippincott uh, had to figure out how to, to explain to the world who uh, Luke Skywalker or Princess Leia or an Obi-Wan Kenobi was. Uh, and, and me personally, I, I'm just fascinated by that. Um, whereas Craig Miller and his excellent Star Wars memories, my time in the Death Star trenches, uh, he takes us to an even more intriguing moment, Dan, which was after, uh, you know, George had finished writing the screenplay for what was then called the Star Wars and individual studios were were kind of trying to decide whether or not they wanted to make the movie. And, you know, I know you and I in the past have talked about Universal. Uh, and, and in fact, Universal was the second studio to get the, um, the script. Because as I understand it, Lucas had an agreement with 
with United Artists, and and they literally had the right of first refusal. They they got the chance to see it first, and because Lucas is making American Graffiti for Universal, um, you know, it seemed like the logical place to go. Um, so he he delivers the script to the folks at Universal, and Dan. Do you know about coverage, um, you know, from, from a studio point of view? Uh, not, not really, but yeah, okay. enlighten me. I'm not, I'm interested in this. Okay. Well, uh, coverage basically, I mean, face it, the studio executives are very, very busy guys. They can't read every single script that a studio is considering. Um, so there, there's literally this, this department at a studio called, you know, this, where they have, people that are known as script readers and uh, literally they sit there every day, they read screenplays and then they create what is known as coverage. And it's typically uh, a two and three page breakdown of the story of the film. Um, and again, the, the, they try to do the, the story of the film at one page and then it breaks down into, okay, um, is, is this film commercial? Uh, you know, what, you know, what do you see are the issues? Is it is it going to be expensive to produce? Is it going to take all, need a lot of effects? Uh, but again, it, it's always about, you know, is it commercial? Will it sell tickets? Will the studio be able to recoup its production costs? And um, the interesting thing, Craig got a hold of the coverage that was written for Universal Pictures for the Star Wars and, you know, the, the, the crucial question as far as Craig was concerned was, uh, and this is honestly what Mr. Miller thinks may have tanked the chances of A New Hope getting made at Universal. And it was one question out of the report. It's like, do we have faith that Mr. Lucas can pull this off? And, you know, and it, you know, face it. Standing here in 2020 and, you know, looking back at everything that Star Wars has become, you know, I mean, <laughs> the answer to the question is, of course, <laughs> you know, uh, but but you have to look at this from the point of view of, you know, I mean, the guy who wrote this, it's it's spring of 1973, uh, an American graffiti won't open in theaters till August of that year. And, you know, mind you, it will eventually be the most profitable film that Universal Picture. I mean, when you factor in that it only costs them a hundred and $775,000 to make, and then it would then go on to become this smash hit worldwide. I mean, it was just, you, they spent so little money on it and the cash just came rolling in, but they don't know that yet. That's going to happen in August. The only thing they know at this point is that there was a test screening in January that went very, very well. Um, and, you know, so it's like, okay, so, you know, George, George has proved himself, you know. I mean, uh, we know now that he can direct a, a small period film. And, he, you know, that's the thing, Dan. We have to be honest. American Graffiti is, is you know, a, basically a teenage comedy yeah. with, with some depth and, you know, uh, and some heart. Um, but you know, George shot it in just five and a half weeks. Um, which is amazing. I know, I, you know, especially when you look at the finished film. Um, but you know, so again, it, it's one of these things where now here's George coming 
through the door with the Star Wars. And the Star Wars is big. It's an adventure story set in space. It's got epic battles, It's which means a lot of effects work in post. And uh, more to the point, you know, Universal was going to have to put up a lot of money up front to make this movie. Uh, New Hope cost, you know, and this is $1976, $11 million to make. Uh, which again, when you remember, you know, American graffiti for only 775,000, that's quite the jump. You know, that's yes. quite the leap of faith. Um, and then when you factor in that universal, the last two attempts at sci-fi that they'd done at that studio, uh, what is it? Dramatist strain and the Colossus, the Forbin project, those hadn't really connected with audiences. Um, basically what, what Craig kind of insinuates it's like look if george had come to universal with another small period piece they would have green light green lit it instantaneously you know just sort of like okay we saw what you could do with american graffiti this looks like it's in the same box it's like sure absolutely go make that movie uh on the other hand George just wants to make a sci-fi movie, and it just just coincidentally before American Graffiti, he made a sci-fi movie, THX one one three eight. That's right. Um, and how do we feel about that one, Dan? I mean, it's, it's certainly got. It's definitely a, a very unique film. It's not certainly uh, family fair, but it's. I mean, it's beautifully done. It's got Robert Duvall in it, and it, it's very. Uh, it's a very dark, cynical film, much the opposite of the tone of A New Hope. No, no, absolutely. And and the weird thing is Warner Brothers, and but again, same thing, George could really stretch when you think about how that movie looked. Uh, you know, George could really stretch a budget. You know, Warner Brothers gave him, and you know, and they remember that that he'd made THX uh, 1138. It, it was based on his student film, right? That's um, right. That's exactly yeah. right. So, you know, he had, you know, that was kind of his proof of concept. And the studio gave him uh, $777,000. So he got, actually got 2000 more than Universal put up for American Graffiti. Uh, on the other hand, that only sold $2.4 million worth of tickets when it was released to theaters in March of 71. So, so here's Universal. And it's like, wow, that last sci-fi project worked out so well for you, <laughs> you know. Um, maybe you should go find somebody else to make this movie. And yeah, what people forget is that sci-fi was not much of a of a ticket sale for for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, back in the seventies and sixties, and people didn't really care about it. So the fact that Star Wars hit it so big was such a big shock because sci-fi was definitely not in. Well, but now th- what's kind of intriguing about that is he takes this movie next to Twentieth Century Fox and Fox on the other hand, had had some success with sci-fi. They had Fantastic Voyage in 66, which won two Academy Awards. Uh, And then in 68, they had the film that launched the Planet of the Apes franchise. And, you know, they were, you know, by 73, geez, I think we were already up to Conquest of the Planet of the Apes at that point, or had we made it to Battle for the Planet of the Apes? I'm I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, when were they in the courtroom? I don't know if we got to that one yet. Oh, yes. I, I think that was escaped. I, 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 I wasted so much of my youth watching Planet of the Apes movies, Dan. I, I don't even want to talk. I about love it. that first one. 
But no, it's great. It's great. Uh, you know, that, that, and, you know, Rod Serling wrote an amazing script, um, you know, but it just, you know, they, I, you know, the, the weird thing is that Fox kept them going as long as they were relatively affordable to make. Um, but anyway, I, you know, George, George never made the mistake that he made with Universal in regard to the Star Wars again. He assumed like, well, you know, I had my successful screening in January with American Graffiti. You know, you know, I can make a good movie. So, and I have a three picture deal with you folks. So of course you're going to, you know, greenlit this. So uh, when that didn't happen, when he met with Fox, he came armed. I mean, he, you know, when he did his pitch to the board of directors, he had, you know, a pile of Ralph McQuarrie's, you know, amazing concept art under his arm so he could show exactly what this movie was going to look like. Um, and, you know, they, they were intrigued, but at the same time, just like uh, a Universal, they wanted information. They wanted coverage. They wanted market research. Um, and this is the story. I've honestly never heard this story before. That, you know, that, that this is the part of, of, of Craig Miller's Star Wars memories that fascinated me. So, uh, it talks about how Fox's market department, uh, you know, they, 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 they were given the task to find out what the public wanted. So they, they had their researcher. But picture this, Dan. They go to Hollywood Boulevard. And again, this is 1973. Uh, and they go there in the, on a weekday afternoon. And they're just stopping people randomly first and going, Okay, this is a list of, of movie genres, mystery, romance, war movies, horror movies, science fiction, comedy. And they ask these people to rank them. You know, which movie would you most want to see? And as you just pointed out, 1960s, not a great time for sci-fi. You know, the sci-fi typically among these, these people who got stopped to take the survey got put to the bottom of the list. But this is the part that just fascinates me. So now they show them a list of potential titles for this project that 20th Century Fox is thinking of making. And Star Wars as a title got ranked very low, um, which Craig points out, not surprising. Uh, out of context, the title isn't very clear. Uh, and then you have right. to remember that uh, the association's what people associated with star and war at that time was mostly negative. I mean, mid 1970s Vietnam war is still on everybody's mind. Uh, people are now tired of what has become a very unpopular war. And, and also evidently people just didn't want to see war movies in general, that, that evidently that was, you know, low on the pile of ranked movies right down there with sci-fi. So, you know, with, they, with a title like Star Wars, the assumption was among those that were surveyed that this proposed movie was somehow going to reference the Vietnam War. Um, and then, um, you know, the, the people, you know, when they were, you know, asked about the word star, they didn't think space. They didn't think, you know, outer space adventure. They thought that star would equal Hollywood. Um and, and also worth noting here, the 20th Century Fox back in 68 made a movie called Star, which was a biopic about Gertrude Lawrence, uh, you know, a famous English actress. Uh, it starred Julie Andrews and colossal flop Fox lost $20 million for the studio. So maybe explains why Fox wasn't all that enthusiastic about making another movie with Star in the title. 
Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, title with the title like Star Wars, what people were, you know, that the people's uh, that Fox's marketing department was surveying on Hollywood Boulevard were asking back to the survey people was basically, is this going to be a movie about you know, you know, movie stars in Hollywood going to war? And it's like, um, they honestly didn't know what to make of that title. Uh, you know, uh, they only knew they didn't like the sound of, you know, a movie called Star Wars. So this is the coverage that uh, Fox's, uh, you know, research department brings back to the, the company's board of directors that based on all the people that they'd surveyed out along Hollywood Boulevard, um, the studio shouldn't make this movie. And if 20th Century Fox decides to plow ahead with production of this new George Lucas film, the very first thing they need to do is find a new title for Star Wars. So, I, you know, for me, Dan, this kind of validates. I mean, I, do you know the famous William Goldman quote? He's the guy who um, wrote the screenplays for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, all the President's Men, and of course, you know, he who wrote the book and the screenplay for The Princess Bride. Yeah, the guy's the guy's a uh, brilliant. He's a genius writer. Oh, and it, I mean, it, and he he wrote these amazing books uh, about working in Hollywood. In fact, his book from 1983, Adventures in the Screen Trade, a personal view of Hollywood and screenwriting. This is the first time Goldman shared this Hollywood truism, which is basically nobody knows anything. Not one person in the entire motor, motion picture field knows for a certainty what's going to work. Every time out, it's a guess. And if you're lucky, it's an educated guess. And, and, you know, and that ultimately brings us to Alan Ladd Jr., who the then president of 20th Century Fox, who looks at this, you know, this market research report that his studio staff has carefully assembled and says, you know what, I'm going to go with my gut. I trust George Lucas. I'm pretty sure he's going to be able to turn that script into an entertaining movie. So in spite of the market research and in spite of the mixed feelings of Fox's board of directors, Ladd decides to green lit, you know, get a green light production of the Star Wars. In fact, the only concession that Alan got out of George is like, can we drop the, the you know, just, you know, just Star Wars. And no articles, George. Yeah, uh, there, there you go. Well, there's uh, actually a wonderful documentary called Laddie uh, about Alan Ladd Jr. in his, his contributions to Hollywood. I mean, he's, he's, he, you know, is behind Star Wars, Alien, Blade Runner, Police Academy, Braveheart. Uh, it's called Laddie, the Man Behind the Movies. It came out in 2017. I highly recommend you check it out. Ooh. Okay, got to chase that down. Likewise, again, Craig Miller's Star Wars Memories, My Time in the Death Star Trenches, is full of stories like this. I mean, mind you, you know, you know, he, uh, you know, was right in the middle of, you know, a, a New Hope, or at least the promotion of New Hope, and then right in the middle of Empire. Uh, so it's kind of a narrow focus, but it's a really entertaining 426 page paperback, uh, from Fujin's press, uh, came out in November of last year. Um, so, you know, highly, uh, you know, uh, again, cannot say enough nice things about this book. And uh, speaking of other things, I cannot say enough nice things about Dan, I really have to applaud you for, you know, I've been following what you've been posting on social media for the past two weeks or so. And 
I, I again, it's just so nice to have somebody who is is open and is an and upfront as you've been about, you know, the causes you support. I mean, well, early in the show, you just talked about the um, the the demonstration you went to. Um, and, yeah. Uh, likewise, I also, I, I have to admire the the, the steady stream of new shows you've been doing that, you know, all of this content you've been bumping out at a time when let's be honest, we all need a little diversion and entertainment, you know, that sometimes the reality gets a little too real. No, I um, hear you. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And, and I am grateful. I, I, I feel like you need to always be honest and open with who you are. And, you know, I, I definitely support black lives matter. And I, I've had plenty of students over the years who've been black Mm-hmm. Uh, I have people in my family who are black and I don't feel like I can can look them in the eye and tell them I love them or I support them or I care for them if I won't if I won't do things like this. So it's I think it's just very important. Again, it's it's to be acknowledged and applauded. Now, um, speaking, though, getting back to the content you've been bumping out, uh, what's going on with uh, Coffee with Kenobi and Pour Over? Yeah, so on Pour Over, we, you know, that's our Patreon exclusive show where you can listen to it for five bucks or a month or ten bucks a month if you want to watch the video version. But we did a top five favorite sodas, and it was really funny I and silly and completely really unimportant, funny. but, but just great fun. Seeing the pictures of like Dr. Pepper, and okay, yeah. now this all makes sense. All right, I just it's like that's what is why. Going on <laughs> That's the that's why you got that 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 hard hitting news that you come to the Nickers there on Twitter for, uh, but we did that and then um, we've got we do a lot we play Dungeons and Dragons once a month we have a, I have a group of teachers from different disciplines we get together and play Dungeons and Dragons we do updates on that uh, on coffee with we just had Dan Madsen on who was uh, he's interviewed George Lucas four or five different times he was in the Phantom Menace. He's in charge of the Lucasfilm fan club for years. He's very well respected. So I got to talk with him for a long time, uh, which was great. And he's a huge Mark Twain fan like myself. We're both Twainiacs. So we talked about Mark Twain, Abraham Lincoln, stuff like that. Oh. It was it was great fun. Have you ever been to the, the, the Twain house in Hartford, Connecticut? I have not been to that, but the, the boyhood home in Hannibal where he grew oh. up I've been there many times, uh, and I've uh, I went through some teacher um, lessons and courses there, and I've actually lectured in Hannibal, Missouri, about teaching Twain. Oh, you're killing me! Okay, no, no, I'm I. One of my other passions is Twain, and I've I did always... my graduate thesis on him too. Did you really? Yeah. Holy cow. Okay. Um. Well, if if well, first of all, if we can ever get you up to to New England, of course, you have to visit with Nancy and I out here in the Unabomber's cabin. Uh, I love but, but the um, the the Twain home in the museum, you know, they over the like the last ten or fifteen years, they've done this amazing thing where they they actually cut into the hillside below the home and built this amazing museum. And you know, and it's it's you know, it's got some wonderful quotes by Twain, you know, carved and granite along the way, but. Um, they have this gallery space where uh, they, you know, that they uh, regularly swap out exhibits. And the last time we were there, they had this wonderful exhibit about all of the Twain family pets that they'd had over the years. Oh, fun! 
you know, and, you know, there's that wonderful, uh, you know, that I think the Twain home had been robbed so many times, uh, you know, that, that, that they were hit with this series of burglaries that Mark wrote up this sign to hang on the door to the essence of pointing out where the valuables were and that, uh, in particular, I guess there was one big china bowl that was worth a lot of money, but the the kittens slept in it. And it just all that Mark asked is like, you can take the bowl, just take the kittens out. So, <laughs> but seriously, you know, well, a, a wonderful take and well worth checking out if you're ever in Hartford. Um, and okay, I, I also... We've been doing a lot of shows uh, here at the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network, and of course, Disney Dish with Glenn Testa. Uh, likewise, a fine tuning with Drew Taylor, uh, who, by the way, again, did, did you see he got that that that, that promotion at Collider? Um, I did. I think that's great. I texted him right away. I'm I'm yeah. super proud of him. He's he's an awesome guy and a great writer, and it's awesome. We are very lucky to have him. Yes, um, for sure. And uh, also Marvelous uh, Disney with Aaron Adams, the gentleman who edits a lot of the podcasts at the site. Uh, likewise, um, Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse, and I want that with Michelle Valladolid, lead, and of course the show you're listening to now. Um, I do have a quick request, folks. Um, if you're not doing anything this weekend, uh, there is an event called Virtual Dayton Disneyana. Uh, it's going to be held June 12th uh, through the 14th, uh, strictly online. Uh, it is a fundraiser for a wonderful organization called Pirate Packs, which provides weekend food assistance for the students of the West Carlton School District. And uh, the reason I'm bringing this up is uh, the nice folks, uh, Gary and Anita Scheingold, who run Dayton Disneyana, uh, they drafted me. Uh, that <laughs> what ended up happening is that, of course, with COVID nineteen, uh, every year previous, Dayton Disneyana has been a fan event. You can attend. You could go to the the Hope Hotel, which is named after Bob Hope, and uh, you know there was a room where they had guest speakers and did panels and presentations, and there was a room where they had collectibles, and hundreds of people would turn out every year to attend this thing. Uh, but again, it's COVID-19 folks were not allowed to get together in large groups. And, um, and Gary and Anita weren't willing to give up on raising money for uh, pirate packs. So what they decided to do was a virtual version of the event. And they turned to me and said, if we go virtual, do you think you can get some of the people you've interviewed over the years to come and talk to you? And so again, and... I didn't know. Um, so I reached out to people like Don Hahn, the producer of Beauty and the Beast, uh, and Paige O'Hara, the voice of uh, Belle in Beauty and the Beast, and Kirk Weiss, the director of Beauty and the Beast. Likewise, uh, Bill Farmer, uh, the voice of Goofy, and uh, what is it? Uh, Eddie Sato, the gentleman who did Main Street for Euro Disneyland, and Gary Goddard, who actually helped invent the Hoopty Review at Walt Disney World. And, oh, wow. uh, you know, I reached out to all these folks and I explained that it was for a great cause and every single one of them uh, offered to get on Zoom with me and do an interview. And every one of these things is 45 minutes to an hour long. And they, they tell wonderful stories about the movies they worked on or attractions that they wanted to get built that never made it off the ground. And 
it's a lot of really fun people being interviewed by a guy who has a face like a canned ham. Um, Dan, that is the downside of, of Zoom. <laughs> people can finally see what I look like, and it's just sort of like, aren't you supposed to be under a bridge frightening goats? Hey, you know, your so, modesty and humility knows no bounds. Yeah, well, t- 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 just tell that to the goats. Um, anyway, um, this is happening this weekend, you know, and but the thing is, it's a virtual fan event, and you do have to buy admission. I want to say it's $30 uh, a ticket. But again, the money goes to an amazing cause, uh, Pirate Packs. You can Google that, folks, and find out all about their mission. Uh, but if you could do me a favor, and if you're not doing anything this weekend, and it's, it's, it's for a great cause, and uh, I would really, really appreciate it. Uh, and I guess beyond that, Dan, um, we're done for now. Um, but, you know, it, at the same time, uh, we'll be back with, in two weeks, hopefully, with, with some some better news. Maybe we will finally know then about uh, Star Wars Celebration. Because I could, man, I could really use that event, Dan. I really want to go to this. If if it's still going to happen, you can you can assure that I will be there for sure. Okay. All right. Well, hopefully we'll get to hang out. So anyway, uh, thanks for listening, folks. And we'll be back with the news so soon.